Welcome to Culture Bites, where we take culture theory and turn it into everyday insights. We're powered by Human Synergistics, and our mission is to change the world one organization at a time. We can only do that together with our amazing community, so thank you for listening. Welcome to Culture Bites. My name is Dominic Gawley. I'm a consultant with Human Synergistics Australia, and I'm joined by Sean McCarthy, who's our chairman for Australia and New Zealand. Hey, Sean. Hi, Dominic. What are you in for this episode, Sean? To talk about a, a professional development event that you put on for our accredited community, and it's really a follow-on from a previous podcast we've done together some time ago, and that one was called The Childhood Origins of Your Thinking and Behavior, which is really about you know how thinking's shaped from the time we're kids. And I thought what would be fun for this one is a, another PD session, professional development session you put on called Alci and the Family System, and it's this one's more targeted around teenagers, really, right? So. Yeah, it is. I mean, we call it LSI and the family systems. It's really about how family systems function and therefore how those styles get played out. That's the relationship with LSI. And much of the focus is on the teenage period because that's the point at which the family system is most challenged. If any of you have had or have teenagers, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. I have a only a newborn, so I don't. So what are you talking about, Sean? <laughs> Your time is yet to come. <laughs> that sounds all ominous. Yeah, look, one way I can put this without trying to sound too arrogant is that over the years, we are, might have been running a workshop with a bunch of senior managers and talking about the uh, relationship between the various styles and communication and relationships and all of that kind of stuff. It inevitably gets into family relationships and inevitably gets into some sort of comment around people who are parenting using aggressive defensive styles may not be parenting as effectively as they can be. And that's the whole point of the LSI is get some feedback and figure out where you can improve. But often, generally, a, a man would come to me and say, look, you know, I've got fantastic relationships with my kids, but this profile says I'm all very red. And uh, I'd sort of ask, so, you know, what age your kids are beating in my head that I'll guarantee they're not teenagers yet. And the answer generally is no, they're under 12 or something like that. Mm. So parenting young children is uh, very different than parenting teenagers because teenagers threaten us inherently and threaten themselves, by the way, with the very existence of being teenagers. So what's the crossover point then? Why yeah. does it change from, you know, you can be red yeah. or be aggressive? Yeah. And maybe you still have a great relationship well, with your 12-year-old, and then yeah. when they're 13, what, what happens? Yeah, traditionally, it is 14, but of course, things like social media and that sort of stuff is bringing us well down in the age bracket. Wow, well, yeah. But one of my favorite lines was uh, by the American author, Mark Twain. He said, when I was a boy of 14, my father was so ignorant, I could hardly stand to have the old man around. When I got to be 21, I was astonished at how much the old man had learned in seven years. <laughs> right. And that, that's a bit of a truism. I mean, our teenagers are discovering so much for themselves that they tend to think their parents are absolute idiots. Where in fact, of course, they're not. They're just not being listened to. And everything changes when the kid turns 21. And they realizes they were right. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, they've, they've figured, you know, again, the best lessons are the ones you learn for yourself. So they learn for themselves over time that actually mum and dad do know one or two things. And despite uh, the strange it might seem, they were teenagers once before. Mm. But what, what concerns me now is uh, technology-driven change is forcing this transition from childhood to teenagehood down the, the numbers. It's, it's down to 12 now. Do you think, Sean, just uh, on a different angle on that one, though, just to challenge you, 
there's a lot more like helicopter parenting and stuff. I mean, back in your yeah. day, even back in my day, yeah. I'd go out on my bike to my friend's house and my parents wouldn't see me till, yeah. you know, the streetlights came on or whatever for dinner. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, I was late for that too. Whereas yeah. nowadays, kids have a phone on them. We know where they are at all times kind of stuff. Is that kind of, I don't know, shutting down some of yes, their independence? Yes, it is. I mean, I think we run a risk of creating an entire generation of not high, perhaps low, and achievement thinking with our youngsters, we this whole notion of uh, absolute care and helicopter parenting mm. will have its cost. So one of the reasons with the family systems thing we focus on the teenage years is um, three major changes that are happening to these kids, and they are around brain development, around hormonal activities, and what's called the psychological process of individuation. Mm. So handling the last one first, individuation is. It's an absolute given that the teenage years are a period of figuring out who the hell you are, individuation, becoming Sean McCarthy as opposed to Sean McCarthy, uh, Pat and Harry's kid or the kid that lives down the road or whatever. So developing a sense of self-identity becomes very important to teenagers. Mm. And you as parents will see the first manifestation of this occurring when all of a sudden, out of the blue, one day as you're dropping the kids off at school, they say to you, could you drop us off a block down the road, mum or dad? They don't want to be seen being dropped off at the gate by their parents anymore. Mm. It, it can be received in a somewhat hurtful way, but it's that beginning of that individuation process. So they become very focused on what their friends think about them, more so than what their parents think about them and so on. But it's an important process that they have to go through. So I was, I was just going to ask, so concerned with what their friends think, do we have any data on, you know, in teenagers is yep. conventional or something higher yep, than do. general pub- yep, population? The typical teenager's profile is very high in all of the passive defensive styles, mm. LSI 1. Mm. They see themselves as very high need for approval, mm. 3 o'clock, very high need to fit in and be accepted by others, 4. There's a whole bunch of stuff going on that they can't influence, 5. And they try to avoid things that they don't understand that are threatening to them, six. Mm, mm. Interesting, I mean, this is the difference between LSI 1 and LSI 2, that LSI 2 is designed to measure attribution. And so it's looking at what behaviours do I think you use so that you are aware of how I think you behave and you can now manage that awareness, make some adjustments, etc. So typically if you get people to do an LSI 2 on their teenager, they'll describe high aggressive defensive styles. Mm because that's what we observe, but they don't see themselves that way at all. So we will attribute aggressive styles to these teenagers, whereas in fact, they're just desperately in need of affection, acceptance, and being part of life. Is that because the people they're wanting the acceptance from is their peer group or something, rather than us as parents, perhaps, or family? Yeah, there's a number of psychological phenomena going on, one of which is social self-concept. So we talk about self-concept all the time around the LSI-1. But there's another element of it's called social self-concept. So this it might be described somewhat in competitive terms, but it doesn't really matter. And so this is how do I compare to you? Am I as popular as you are? Am I as good at whatever it might be as you are? Making conclusions about themselves that I'm good at this, I'm not good at that, etc. And that's the where the their friends are now the reference point rather than the superiors, if you like, like parents, teachers, families, etc. Mm. So this whole notion of social self-concept, where am I, where do I sit, how do I compare, what am I good and bad at, 
how do I rate myself in comparison to those people that I have around me of a similar age group become absolutely paramount as part of that individuation process. So does that mean, Sean, that you know who your friends are makes a massive difference? Oh, to- yes. <laughs> yeah. oh, yes, yes, and yes. Uh, there's the old expression, uh, judge me by the company that I keep, or you uh, will be judged by the company that you keep. And that's very, very true and uh, very important for parents to encourage positive relationships with others and their teenage kids, which is why I've always said the best thing you can do for teenagers is get them involved in sport. Mm. Whatever the sport happens to be, it doesn't really matter. It gets them involved with other people, teaches them all sorts of interpersonal skills, teaches them the joys of winning, the tragedies of losing, all things that we need to learn to be resilient as adults. Which is interesting because, of course, this is probably another topic, but there's a big movement to, you know, stop losing and stuff. Isn't uh, that's absolutely and utterly ridiculous. Part of reality and part of resilience is you don't win everything. You can't win all the time. Not everything always goes well. Sometimes shit basically just happens. And so you need to learn techniques to deal with that. So this whole notion of not scoring a game for a bunch of six-year-olds playing netball or something like that has no scientific basis behind it whatsoever. Mm, interesting. Yeah. But it's, it's so popular. And, and I always think, Sean, even if we're not keeping score, I bet the kids are keeping score anyway. Oh, so of they know, of course they know they if they want. Yep. And they know if they play well or not. Yep. So that's the individualization. Indi- uh, individuation. Individuation. Yeah. Which is the, and that's a pretty classic one, drop me around the corner. I mean, I remember doing that to my parents. Oh, yep. I'd be yep. dead if I was seen with my yep. mum and dad saying yeah, outside the party. Oh my gosh, drop yep. me around the corner. So actually that's a stage they go through and we should actually be happy that they're there, Sean. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's the need to be their own person. So they need to, literally that's why the word individuation is used. They need to individuate from the parent. They're no longer mum's boy or dad's oh, best mate. They're their own person. They're their own person. And it really is like something that has to happen, and it's something that happens through a combination of hormonal changes and neurotransmitter changes. So what it does is, is it leads to, I mean, of course, if you're trying to discover yourself, it's always hard. Even when you're at an adult, you're trying to figure out who you are, you'll come guts from time to time. Mm. So very typically, what you see in teenagers as a consequence of this individuation process is that they... You know, they, they can have episodes, quite serious episodes of self-doubt and sense of vulnerability. On the other hand, they can have very elevated moods and, and they tend to vacillate between these two processes. Mm. They get subject to viruses that are doing, they get sore throats, bronchitis, frequent colds, flus, everything's going around they get. And it's just because the body is working so hard and the mind is working so hard on this individuation process, they open themselves up to all sorts of illnesses. Huh. Their relationships now are more with their peers than they are with their parents, and the parents have to be really careful that they don't get hurt or feel hurt by that because it's just, it is what it is. They have a strong need for privacy and personal space as part of this advocacy, uh, individuation process. So you'll find all of a sudden they start shutting the bedroom door and you're wondering what in God's name is going on in that room. <laughs> and you need to respect and value that privacy. So it's both emotional and physical privacy. So often, they will look very unhappy and you will ask them as a parent what's going on and they won't tell you. Just a shrug of the shoulders, nothing, and they'll walk off to their bedroom and close the door. So that's psychological space as well as physical space. Rebellion, of course, is part of teenagers. We all did this. So rebellion is finding out what you want me to do and doing the exact opposite. So we sort of have to expect <laughs> that that's going to happen. And they'll easily misread signals so that when you know some boy or girl comes home way after the curfew time at night time and you're 
angry. You're angry because you love them and you are very fearful of what could have been happening to them. All they see is that you're angry with them. So they misread those cues all the time. Mm. How do you deal, Sean, with rebellion then and with shutting the door and, and, you know, that space, I guess, of interacting? Because that must be tough as a parent. Like, I can imagine it either go... It is tough. You know, open your bloody door yeah. <laughs> or, you know, whatever it is, or, or be home at 10 on the dot or there'll be hell to pay. Yeah, that's that's the last thing you want to do. You uh, you never want to fight with a teenager. And you may remember if you've heard the um, Childhood Origins podcast or been to the presentation that I talk about how the child, when they're young, is the center of their own universe. Mm. And if you haven't heard that one, I mean, the, the example that's often given is the three-year-old sitting in the back of the car at night time saying, Mummy, why is the moon following us? So she really does see herself as a centre of the universe and that's just natural process. So likewise, as part of this individuation process, they do see themselves as central to their own universe. So they don't understand that parents may have gone through this, my God, you're so old, you can't ever have been a teenager. And they don't understand <laughs> that their friends are going through the same stuff. And so they all tend to bottle it up and keep it to themselves. But again, for want of uh, throwaway lines... There's another old saying in the sort of family systems theory that uh, at all times as parents remember that the cure for being 13 is to turn 14 and the cure for being 14 is to turn 15 and I won't keep going but basically the cure for being 19 is to turn 20. And there's many things going on that we're simply not that aware of. So, I mean, I'll share something with you that you might find quite surprising that in the human reproductive cycle, when the, the fetus is formed in uterus, it actually has more neuron connections in its brain at that point than it will ever have as a human being. Huh. And in the last trimester, there's a huge pairing of those neurons. So basically, by that stage, as part of its growth, the brain has figured out what it doesn't need, and it's getting rid of it. It's called pairing connections, pairing neutron neurons. There are, however, a few too many still left by the time that little thing pops out. So there's another major phase of pairing back of neuron transmission connections, and that's when the teenage years are. So between the ages of 14 and 18, there's all sorts of things going on inside the brain that the kid can't understand and the parent sure as hell can't understand. And it's purely a physical process of the brain identifying connection that's not being used, not needed, get rid of it, burn it out kind of thing. And so this creates all sorts of hormonal things inside the body of that boy or girl the obvious ones are testosterone and estrogen, etc. but there's many more playing around in that, particularly adrenaline and all the factors that it influences throughout the body mm. that are causing these bodily changes that the kids just don't understand. They suddenly grow a couple of inches, they stop growing, they grow again, they get sick all the time, they get gangly and uncoordinated and fall over easily. And one of the things that happens that parents just don't know how to deal with, I have to say, is a uh, reduction in melatonin, at, um, particularly for teenage boys, but also to some extent for girls. So melatonin is uh, what helps you go to sleep at night. So people like me who live out of a suitcase and travel around the world take a bottle of melatonin tablets with them because I can pop it at midday Australia time, which might be 10 o'clock at night in the US or something, and it tells my body, oh, there's a whole bunch of melatonin here, better go to sleep. By the way, it works and it's reasonably healthy. But these kids are getting less melatonin created inside their body as part of all this other stuff that I just talked about, which means when you say go to bed and they don't want to go to bed, they don't actually want to go to bed because they're not tired and they're not going to be tired. 
So they will start to stay up later at night and they will want to sleep in later in the morning. So their circadian rhythm, if you like, shifts from sort of like a, a 9, 10 o'clock to 6, 7 o'clock to a midnight 1 o'clock to a 10, 11 o'clock kind of thing. And it's really interesting around the world, various private schools have actually experimented with rather than starting school at 9, let's start school at 11. And it oh. makes a hell of a lot of sense. It's funny because I guess 9am was from the factory days or yep. something in the Industrial yep. Revolution. Yep. Absolutely. So. With that, because I've I've thought, you know, I've got this young son who's four and a half months or something at the moment. Yep. And it's like, and he's getting us up at the crack of dawn every day. Yep. And it's like in 10 years time or more, 15 years time, yep. he'll think we're very uncool for getting up at the crack of dawn, but of course he's trained us to do that. Yep. So like, what do you do as a parent? Like, Don't fight the system. You, you huh. know, so you never want to fight against City Hall kind of thing. So telling your kids to go to bed and go to sleep early when in fact their body is not prepared to go to sleep is not going to make them go to sleep. It's just going to create an argument. So as uh, radical and all as it might sound, just let them go with it. But of course, they've got to get up in the morning to uh, to go to school for the conventional time. So the kids are going to be tired. But there's again, there's nothing you can do about it. The body is not ready to go to sleep until something like 11 o'clock. It won't go to sleep until 11 o'clock. So what about, Sean, with like you know, having some discipline, some structure for kids? Discipline's a much overused word, uh-huh. in my view. You know, like we can go right back to fear the rod and spoil the child kind of discipline, which obviously is complete and utter nonsense. But again, children, one of your key goals as a parent is to make sure that by the time that child goes off into an adult world, that they are, to use circumplex language, high in achievement. Mm. So they are preoccupied with doing things very well. They like to set goals around things and and strive to achieve those goals. They believe their own personal effort can make a difference. They believe in the notions of cause and effect, and they have a thirst for feedback on how they're going. That's your job as a parent, as well as one who is extraordinarily humanistic, so that they not only have that very task-focused aspect to their life around them, whatever it could be, it could be about being an artist or a pianist, to being a street artist, to being a CEO, it doesn't matter. It's all achievement application in terms of where my effort can make a difference. But at the same time, that needs to be modified by the humanistic encouraging stuff, if you like, in terms of a unconditional positive regard for others, an ability to show love and sincerity and empathy and curiosity around other people, etc. And uh, so that, to me, that's your job. And part of that over the teenage years is allowing them to take responsibility for their own actions and make their own decisions. It may sound like heresy, but it's pretty much the opposite of the traditional notion of discipline. So, I mean, I, I remember, Sean, kids growing up and, you know, there was always the kid who had really strict parents, you know, who, who would hover over them. I mean, I think today it's probably even worse with kids with cell phones, so we know where they are yeah. at all, all moments. But, you know, back then, I remember a, a friend of mine who wasn't allowed to go to a PG movie, even though he was no, 16 or something, because it parental guidance, right? It's ridiculous. And, you know, all that. And the problem it caused is when finally they got out of home yep. or got away from, from the eyes yep. or whatever, yep. they went wild, right? They went crazy off the deep end because they had no experience actually of being able to gauge risk or gauge... Yep. Yep you know, all that stuff for themselves and without a rule or a guide, yep. they just kind of went bonkers. Well, and that's exactly what happens. And of course, they'll go bonkers when the parents don't know about it. I mean, a very good illustration of that would be, I'll never forget, a friend of my daughter's, she grew up in a very strict family, lots of parental control, et cetera, and mm. paint that picture. 
But I always found it very funny we all the parents were together when um, these girls went off to university. They all happened to fly on the same plane to the same city to go to the same university, about 20 of them. And so everybody's doing the, you know, bye-byes and all the rest of it. And I watched this friend of my daughter's. As she, I was at an angle where I could see them once they've gone around the corner. And when this kid got around the corner, she's high-fiving everybody and punching the air. And you could just see she's got freedom all of a sudden. Problem is she doesn't know what to do with that freedom. And that mm-hmm. had some pretty serious costs for that kid in the first year of university. I mean, with luck, they all survive because they learn their lessons their own way. But uh, you can aid in the bed along the way if you can. And so it's a lot of that, I think, is kids have to, yeah, I think you said at the very start of this podcast, they've got to learn for themselves. If you tell them everything, then they don't build that cause and effect thinking. They don't build that self-belief. Yeah. I think one of the most important things I would say to any parent of a teenager is to understand that there's a lot of stuff going on in them that they don't understand themselves. So this individuation stuff, this pairing of neurons mm. in that late teenage period mm. and the hormones, and stuff. the hormone stuff that's happening, they can't control that. And in fact, with the brain development stuff, all this neuron pairing, et cetera, the last part of the brain that gets developed, and it can be up to age 22, is what's called the executive function part of the brain, the frontal lobe. And this is the part of the brain that helps you, in quotes, be responsible. So in having an argument with a 17-year-old about being responsible, you're arguing against physical science, basically, because the kid's brain hasn't developed that be responsible part yet. So they will do stupid things. And of course, in Australia in particular at the moment, there's a really serious problem around ecstasy and what is it, MDMA or something like that. The same thing as Those four initials, I don't know what order they're in, but I was reading a paper this morning about the severity of this in teenagers and, and the normalizing of using those party pills, etc. It's just a nightmare. And so somehow, and again, I'm glad my days as a teenage parent are well and truly gone. There are so many challenges out there now for the kids. It's, uh, it, is, it is a threat. Mm. But recognize that this is happening and give them some license. Allow them to make their own decisions. Give them some freedom. And so what's the family system doing around them then, Sean? Yeah, the idea of the system is that every individual's behavior in the system is a consequence of everybody else's behavior in the system. So as you Mm. turn left, I'll turn right. As you go up, I'll go down. Because systems, by very definition, strive for stability. And that stability is threatened, which is why I focus on teenagers in the LSI and the family system, is the, the system is most threatened with these changes that come unannounced when kids get into the teenage years. So the system really has to be very careful that it doesn't assign responsibilities for behaviours in an inappropriate way. That might sound slightly technical, but what happens in a system, in a family system in particular, roles are defined. And so you will have somebody in the family who is the decision maker. You will have somebody who is the problem solver. The peacekeeper. Yeah, the peacekeeper, the carer, as many roles as you could possibly think of somebody could have. And so these become overdeveloped. And so when you get into our world and talking to management, leadership, senior people, whatever, you know, we talk about overdeveloped sense of responsibility is a very commonly used phrase. Well, that's probably been developed as part of the family system where as a child, that individual has seen another family member doing things that threatens the system. The parents talk about this lack of responsibility And the child that's observing this decides that, you know, I will compensate by being overly responsible. 
And whilst it might look like a really well-behaved 16-year-old, it doesn't necessarily help when they get to be in their 40s and 50s. Mm. What about, Sean, just thinking of family systems? I remember a, a story a teacher told told the class years and years ago, and for some reason it's always stuck in my mind, which was, and it was, I guess it's a made-up story, where there's two brothers and they their father is the town drunk kind of thing. And one goes on to be successful and one goes on to be the new town drunk, essentially, when his father passes on and they ask they asked them you know why did you turn out the way they did and they both said with a father like mine how could you be anything different <laughs> that's a great story you know and so it's always yeah. stuck with me because and that's where i guess is there an individual element that comes in here of you know because the success one said with a father like mine i was going to do everything i could to not do that and yeah. the other one said with a father like mine I had no option but to follow in his footsteps kind of thing. Well, that's a couple of podcasts. Yeah. Right, <laughs> All right. Yeah, how individual family members respond to authority. I mean, it is, it, it, I'm not kidding, it's a couple of podcasts. It's, it's a very grey area when you have the same familial situation and very different reactions to that. Mm. So is that reaction different between, say, you and I as siblings because I have experienced different things to you or mm. that I've observed what's been happening to you? Mm. Or is there something about my physical and psychological makeup that's different from you that causes me to react? And really nobody has the answer to that one. You know, mm. is, is it contextual, situational, or is it physical, emotional, psychological? Don't know. Nobody really knows. Mm. Yeah, That's the next challenge, I suspect. There you go. Any budding researchers out there who want to get into yeah, that? Yeah. My, my, my guess would be in that situation that one child has been the protagonist, so that's the role that that family member has adopted, mm. and the other has been the observer. Mm. And the protagonist has created situations that has result in the observer, resulted in the observer making conclusions about what should or should not be done. It's worth thinking, by the way, given what we all do for a living, that the family system is an organization. And the whole idea of family system is the same as organizational culture. So when we think about how do we develop a constructive culture in an organization, the same rules of the game apply to how do I develop a constructive family system. Ah. And so if we have a look at the how culture works model and all the elements behind Dr. Cook's research that we know, impacts the organization's culture, then if you do the same things as a family around what are our beliefs and values around involving people in decision-making, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, mm. uh, you're one big step ahead towards achieving that goal of having high constructive children. That's interesting. So it's the same same factors. Same I mean, people are people at the end of the day. Yep. Yeah, just the organization stuff's got bigger words. So we might talk about articulation mm. and mission and strategy and all that sort of stuff. So in a family, we talk about what are our fundamental beliefs, what are our values, mm. and that becomes increasingly important today. I believe with the the sort of the drop in really, I was going to say Christianity, showing my own bias background, but religion. You know, when I grew up, most people went to church of some description mm. on a Sunday morning. Now, very very few people do, mm. and so those values were inherent in the religion that the family belonged to, and those values were taught from parent to child, et cetera, as part of that deal. And if that's not happening now, what values and how are those values being passed? I'm not necessarily saying religious values, but there'll still be a value system in the family where it used to be aligned to the church, whatever that might be, or the religion. It was therefore easily identifiable. Now, mm. if it's not, 
it's probably not so easily identifiable. So it's always interesting to ask in a family, what's the family value system? What's important in this family? What's the fundamental beliefs in this family? And they look at you with a face that says, actually, that's a really good question. Implicitly, they probably do. Yeah. They show up all over the place, what's important here, but explicitly, they never define them. And that's why we get people to write things down in workshops and things, because you can sort of say, yeah, implicitly, I I get that. But then when I actually have to write it down, I can't, Mm. which means we're not making it explicit. Mm. And we're not clear, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So what else should we be aware of in the family system, Sean? Yeah, look. Just building on what I said about culture, I mean, in any family system, there's rules and there's both explicit and implicit rules. And I've never been a big fan of explicit rules in families. So it's part of the um, the other podcast and PD presentation around childhood origins. I would have talked about not having too many rules and the same applies here. I mean, again, another podcast I talked about, you know, the how to deal with stressful situations and one is don't sweat the small stuff. So just as an aside, one of the fundamental forms of argument between parent and teenager is the tidiness or lack thereof in the bedroom. And you have to ask yourself, does it really matter? Because it doesn't obviously matter to the teenager. So you're having an argument that's very one-sided by definition. So don't sweat the small stuff, food for thought. How did I get myself onto that? I don't know, but I was, th- <laughs> I was, I was thinking, uh, Sean. Rules, rules, yeah, that's right. right, yeah. Don't have too many of them because rules simply become something to challenge. So uh-huh. the, more, the more you have them, the more you've got challenge of them. And better to have the implicit rules, which is the organization's culture. So what are the implicit expectations of you in this family? And that goes right back to the childhood origin stuff. So the implicit expectations in a family of teenagers is not done when they're teenagers, it's done well before that. And so it's really sending, so instead of a rule being be home by 10, it's yeah. make sure you're safe. Look after your friends, yep. you know, stuff like that. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of the be home by 10 is because you need to go to bed because you've got a busy morning the next morning. I'll, I'll just share with you a personal story that I was fortunate in having two children. I wasn't so worried about my son, which again is a bias of mine. But when my daughter was old enough to go out at night time as a teenager, I sat up until she came home. This is a very interesting illustration of power style thinking because, uh, my wife would go to bed and go to sleep and it annoyed the crap out of me that she could do that because I felt I needed to be awake when she got home. And she, uh, my wife that has asked me the question, what are you trying to achieve in staying up late at night? And I said, well, to keep her safe. The obvious next question is, so how is she safe or simply because you're sitting in the lounge watching television? The answer to that, of course, is she isn't. It's for my sake, not for her. I feel better about it if I'm awake and waiting for her. And I have to say, the first night I went to bed and fell asleep before she came home was extraordinarily liberating. <laughs> that got rid of that one little smidgen of power that I had in my stuff. And so, I mean, we do these things. Again, this, this notion of dysfunctional is always interesting. We do them for things that we think that they will achieve, but often they mm. don't have achieved that kind of stuff at all. Yeah, well, the intention was, oh, yeah. I want to make sure she's safe yeah. Yeah. and so on. So it's not a bad intention, but it can be the... The outcome. And so the implicit rules are important and probably, again, not my issue now because my children are well past teenage years, but with the drugs that exist today, mind you, they were, they were called herbals back in our day and they mm. were equally as dangerous because they weren't herbals at all. They were chemicals. <laughs> and kids said they're called herbals, therefore they're natural. They're safe. <laughs> that's br- brilliant marketing. So, I mean, that's where some implicit slash explicit rules can be helpful around 
talking with your kids about the reality of these things, the dangers of these things, what the upsides and downsides of doing these things are, about the what do you want to achieve in the future and how will doing some of those things potentially make it difficult to achieve those things in the future. But again, the more we have in good, strong, implicit rules in the family, the less you need the explicit ones. Yeah, beautiful. All right, Sean, is there any closing thought that we should take away? Uh, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> in today's world of social media, I mean, we're seeing all sorts of impacts of social media from a research point of view right now. And uh, I haven't got time to talk to all of those, but it is making kids so-called grow up much younger. They're not growing up much younger at all. They're just experiencing certain aspects of life that are not entirely tasteful at a much younger age. Mm. Puts an enormous amount of pressure on those kids and an enormous amount of pressure on the parents. So Mm. at all times, remain constructive. Don't sweat the small stuff. And don't forget to breathe. Don't forget to breathe. Exactly. I think that's a great note to end on, Sean. I hope that helped uh, some parents out there. And I know I'll re-listen to this one in uh, 14 years' time or something to uh, to recap. Thanks Thank a lot, Sean. Thank you, Doc. Thanks for listening to this episode of Culture Bites. If you enjoy the show, remember to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, leave us a review. It helps other people to find the show. If you have a question you'd like us to answer, email podcast at human-synergistics.com.au. We'd love to answer it. This podcast is copyrighted by Human Synergistics Australia, all rights reserved. To learn more about what we do, visit human-synergistics.com.au.